Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 6 as we begin a new chapter in this gospel that we've been working through Sunday after Sunday. Mark chapter 6, our text for this morning will be verses 1 through 6, and I want to tell you that this is a hard passage of scripture. It's tough to take in when you see it for what it really is. God took on flesh and dwelt among us, John says. And when he did this, we need to be very understanding and very clear that he suffered greatly when he took on this flesh and dwelt among us. When I say that, you, you often go immediately to the cross and you say, yes, our Christ suffered immensely on the cross. And that is very true and very right. And it's the ultimate suffering that any human could ever endure. But we also need to consider the harassment and the suffering that he had at the hands of the Pharisees who constantly were barraging him with questions and doubts and trying to discredit his ministry. He experienced a lot of suffering in that realm But we also need to take it down a step further and we need to understand that Jesus suffered much, much in his personal relationships with friends, with disciples, and with family members. Throughout Jesus' life, from the moment of his baptism forward, he repeatedly suffered personal pain. I want to give you an example of this over in Luke chapter 4. Listen to this passage. One of my favorite passages of Scripture. Luke 4, starting in 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And, he was, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says this. I love this. (laughs) And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the people in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Nobody talked like that when they read from the prophet Isaiah. Nobody talked like that. And it says that the people marveled at the lovely things that were coming out of his mouth. But right after that passage... In the next verses, Jesus begins to preach very pointedly. And he preaches in such a way that the people in the synagogue do not like what they are hearing now from his mouth. And look at one of the most tragic verses in Scripture, verse 28 of Luke 4. Maybe you didn't turn there. Let me just read it to you. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But the text says he passed through them and went on his way. His own hometown 
is wrathful towards him for what he was preaching. It was lovely when he read from Isaiah, but now you're preaching at me about some things that I hold near and dear? I don't like this. I want you out of here. In fact, let's go out to the hill. We're going to push you off because we can't handle this anymore. That had to have hurt. Can you imagine Jesus going to his hometown and them escorting him to the brow of the hill to shove him off? He felt deep personal pain at that moment, don't you know? Uh, How about a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Mark chapter 3. If you're still in Mark, just just look back over at chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Jesus suffers greatly here at the hands of his own family. Mark 3, 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat, in verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is mother and brothers and sisters saying their son, their brother, Jesus, is out of his mind. Don't you know? Don't you know that had to have hurt in Jesus' humanity? Even more recently, a couple of weeks ago, when Jesus is in the boat with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee and the storm builds up, even in that moment, he's asleep down in the bottom of the boat and his disciples come to him and say, Jesus, do you not understand that we are perishing? That had to have hurt because his response to them is, do you still not believe? So Jesus, this morning as I set this passage up, we need to understand that Jesus Christ, the man, the God-man, suffered immensely in his personal relationships. And this morning's text, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, is a very pointed example of yet more suffering that Jesus experienced. And I want us to make certain this morning that when we see this tragic situation... Not even an ounce of it can be found in us. May we never follow suit for these Nazarenes that Jesus is in the midst of. May we never follow down their trail. In any little corner, in any little subtle moment in our hearts as we think about our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's look at Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And I'm going to read the text and then we'll come back and work through it. He went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to him, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled. Because of their unbelief. And he went about amongst the villages teaching. That's a tough passage of scripture. There's some phrases. There's some sentences in there. 
that we need to wrap our minds around as best we can, and we need to be warned that we should not go where these Nazarenes went. Verse 1, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Uh, Where did he go away from? He has just healed a woman that has bled for 12 years. He's just raised a little girl named Talitha from the dead. And he went away from that and he comes to his hometown, Nazareth, with his disciples. Let me tell you about Nazareth. Nazareth is a small village on the side of a rocky hill that the whole town archaeologists have discovered probably encompassed about 60 acres. This is a small village place. Estimated population did not exceed 500 at any point. This is nowheresville, okay? And this is where Jesus called home. And he goes to nowheresville, so much so, Nathaniel, you know what he says about Nazareth when he learns Jesus is from there? Can anything good come from Nazareth? This is a a poor, reputable place, irreputable place for a host of reasons. This place, Nazareth, is never mentioned in the Old Testament. This place is so desolate in the kingdom of God, it seems, that they did not even have a church established in their midst until 325 A.D., during the time of Constantine. (laughs) Never mentioned in the Old Testament. No New Testament church until 300 years after Jesus' death. This is a desolate, rocky place. Can anything good come from it? Well, God can come from it. Doesn't it sound like 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29? God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Nazareth is foolish in the eyes of the world. And this is where the God-man Jesus Christ is from and hails his home. So, this is Jesus' hometown. He's returned to it with his disciples. He's just done a hard journey of ministry, covering, crossing the sea back and forth and healing people and raising people from the dead. And he comes to home. And it's the Sabbath. Look with me in verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. This is a common theme in Jesus' teaching ministry. They're astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and sisters? Isn't this him? So they've rightly identified their native son. And we see here that Jesus, upon returning home, first thing he does is he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. You'll see that often in Jesus' ministry. Jesus was a Sabbath-honoring, um, synagogue-attending man. He believed in the gathering of God's faithful. And wherever he was, he gathered. He doesn't take Sabbaths off, Sunday mornings today off. It was important for him to go where the Word was proclaimed and taught and exposited and applied to life. And so here we find him in the synagogue. And if it was important enough for Jesus to be a faithful synagogue attender, shouldn't it be important for us? And I commend you for being here because this is part of God's blessed provision for us to gather like this. May you never forsake this, even for a season in your life where you always, on Sundays, come gather with God's people. 
And as always, Jesus, when he's in the synagogue, he's asked to teach. I read the passage to you from Luke where he's given the scroll of Isaiah and he read from Isaiah. Well, here he is teaching in the synagogue. The people are astonished at what he has to say. But I'm going to tell you that astonished does not always mean good things. It does not always mean this is going to turn out well. We have some signs here that tell us that this astonishment is not good. First, we see that they ask the question, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? And how about this power, these mighty works done by his hands? Where did he get these? So obviously they do not know who is in their midst. But so far so good. These are, these are acceptable questions to a degree. We've got to give these people some grace. They've not yet encountered the resurrected Christ. But note, there is a subtle phrase in their line of questioning that you ought to circle and say, uh-oh, uh-oh. They, they say... In verse uh, 2, where did this man get these things? This man. His name is Jesus. He grew up in Nazareth. They know his mother is Mary. They know the names of his brothers. They know his name. His name is Jesus. But they're distancing from him in this moment. And it's going to be because they're going to criticize him and they're going to be angry with him. And so they start distancing even in their language and they say, this man. This is the first hint that this is going to go south. Then next, look in verse 3. We see a shift in tone that reveals their heart of astonishment. And it's not a good astonishment. They say, is not this the carpenter? So there's no recognition here yet of deity, none whatsoever. This is just a mere carpenter, they're saying. That is somewhat insulting. But then the next question, is not this the son of Mary? Well, we need to understand what that question means, because that question is loaded with insult. Loaded. This is not a recognition of the virgin birth. You might want to go there immediately, the son of Mary. Mary conceived immaculately, a miraculous conception. Jesus from the Holy Spirit. No, they are not acknowledging here the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Normal, respectful language of this time would have been to say, is this not the son of Joseph? You always identified a man with his father. Because he's carrying his father's lineage. And they do not say, is this the son of Joseph? It's the son of Mary. Now, it could be that Joseph had already passed away. There does seem to be evidence. We don't have scripture that says Joseph died. But Joseph disappears after Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, gets left back at the temple for a couple of days. We never hear of Joseph again. At the cross, Jesus is delegating the responsibility of Mary to the disciple that he loved, John, because Joseph is not on the scene to care for his wife. And we would assume that Joseph, being a righteous man, died and didn't abandon his family. That's an assumption. I think it's pretty safe. So we, we see here that they refer to Jesus as the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph. And we need to understand that this is an insulting reference 
This is a harmful, cutting insult against him. And it, in essence, is calling him an illegitimate child. It was scandalous when Mary was pregnant. Joseph, the text says, thought to divorce her quietly because she had been unfaithful in the betrothal. You know the town was scandalized by this pregnancy before these two had come together. And so here is a a jab with barbs in it at Jesus, basically communicating that he is an illegitimate son. The next question, is not this the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? We get from this that Jesus is at least the oldest of seven siblings. There's four brothers and sisters is plural. We don't know how many sisters, but there's at least two of them. So there's six brothers and sisters. Jesus would be the seventh child. We would agree that he's the oldest because Mary's womb had not yet conceived. So we've got a big family here. And all of his brothers and sisters are there. And there's at least two sisters. They're not named like the brothers, probably because they're married. And they take on the name of their husbands. And so we've got a family witnessing Jesus speaking. We've got townspeople from the hometown gathered around. And we've got Jesus in the synagogue speaking and astonishing them with wisdom that they don't know where it came from. And isn't isn't it interesting they ask, who is this man? Is he the son? He's the son of Mary. He's just a carpenter. These people do not know that he is the son of God. And yet demon after demon up to this point in Mark has called Jesus the son of God. Humanity cannot recognize God with us. Even his own hometown in, in moments. Even his mom and his brothers and his sisters. It had to have hurt. It had to have pierced his guts. Watch this. Then the ultimate revelation of their hearts is given in verse, uh, verse 3 at the end there, that very last sentence. And they took offense at him. Underline that. Underline that. That is a horrifying sentence in the Bible. The people... That Jesus is from. The people that Jesus came to to save are offended at Jesus. That is tragic. And this is not new. We live in a culture even today that is offended at Jesus. C.S. Lewis is famous for his saying. He says, Jesus Christ, if you take the Jesus of the Bible... He was either Lord, or he was a lunatic, or he was a liar. It's one of C.S. Lewis's most famous quotes. Well, at this point in the book of Mark, the demons think he's Lord. His family thinks he's a lunatic. Mark chapter 3, verse 21, he's out of his mind. And his townspeople from Nazareth think he's a liar. Where did he get this wisdom? Who is this? He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary. What a fouled up mess. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. God said this long before Jesus ever walked on earth. God says, and he, speaking of Jesus, 
prophetically. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it and they shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Hello, Nazareth. They're snared and they're taken. They have fallen upon the stone and they're being broken as we read. And here's the astonishing thing. These people took offense at the very one who came to pay for their offenses against God. That's mind-boggling. They took offense at the one Jesus Christ who came to pay for their offenses against him, God. And he never committed offense once, even towards these people, much less to his Father in heaven. Well, let's look at Jesus' response, because this is a very ugly scene. This is tragic beyond definition. Jesus responds now, starting in verse 4, and he gives us this saying that we are very familiar with. Let's be careful about how we handle this phrase. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. What what he's saying is in human relationships, familiarity breeds contempt. You've been rejected by family? I have. In moments. There's been contempt towards me. And I'm going to tell you that I've been contemptible. I have deserved some of the contempt that my family has pointed towards me. And in other ways, I haven't. But I'm a fallen man. But Jesus Christ was not. Familiarity with Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man who never committed a wrong, who had no quirky idiosyncrasies that were hard to co-live with, he didn't have any of that. He's God in the flesh. And no one should ever have contempt towards him, including his mom and his brothers and his sisters, including his hometown. He did not merit the contempt that he did, whereas I do at times. And Jesus draws three circles in this text that show us where the contempt came from and where the prophet was without honor. It was in his own hometown. Then it was a tighter circle within his relatives. And then it was a pinpoint circle within his own household. Jesus Christ experienced contempt from his own to those the very closest to him that should have been the most near and dear. And don't you know that it pained him and pierced his soul? That is part of the suffering that Christ came to endure for us. So he responds with this saying. And he acknowledges that his own people do not embrace him. There is a danger. Let's get personal now for us. Because we could right now throw a lot of rocks at his family and his hometown of Nazareth. Let's don't do that. Let's set the rocks down. Because we could throw rocks at one another over this thing. There is a danger that we, too, become so familiar with Christ in the Bible 
that we kind of hold him in contempt, especially when he speaks against the things that we don't want changed, right? We know the Bible so much that at some point, Jesus can almost become a science to us. Let's don't go there. Let's don't get so familiar with Jesus that he's just a scientific artifact that we look at and consider from time to time. No, he is a person that we are to have a relationship with. And that relationship is to be constantly growing. Constantly growing. We fall more in love with Jesus Christ the more we shuck off the sin that he calls us to shuck off. The more we unleash all this baggage and the closer and more pure we get with Christ, our relationship grows and our infatuation with him is feverish. That's how the Christian life is to be. And it's going to hit a crescendo in eternity when Jesus Christ comes again and we're with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. That's where we're heading, Christian. And so let's be diligent to fall more and more in love and in obedience and in worship to Jesus Christ as we get ready for the ultimate experience for all of eternity. So we cannot let him be a science or some facts or just a guru that had some good wisdom sayings. This is the living God who dwelt among us and who lives and reigns even right now. I want you to think about him right now. Let's worship together. Let me give you three words that ought to send us into orbit in worshiping Jesus Christ. You ready? Let's just work these through. Incarnation. Incarnation. That word ought to do plenty for you. God, who spoke everything into existence, took on flesh. He became incarnate. And he dwelt among us. And he lived in bodies just like we have. And he felt wounds from family members and townspeople that would reject him and be offended at him. Incarnation. God, you became like me. Why? Well, the second word. Substitution. Listen, this word ought to be your favorite word for the rest of eternity. Substitution. Jesus Christ took on flesh. He became incarnate. And then he, without sinning once, died and paid the death penalty that God proclaimed on you and on me. He was a substitute on the cross. And we ought to think of this word substitute and be sent into orbit and worship. And we ought to not be offended at him. We ought to love him all the more and obey him all the more and worship him all the more. Substitution. There's another word. We could go on, but I'll give you a third word. Resurrection. Resurrection. God took on flesh. He died as a substitute. But yeah, while he was dead, he rose again. And that is the only reason that I have any kind of hope for now. And for eternity. Resurrection. That word. You can't say that word without smiling. Can you? Try it. What a beautiful word. These three words. If you just thought about incarnation. Substitution. And resurrection. For the rest of your days. And really unpacked what those words mean. In about two minutes. Each occasion. 
Oh, you would never be offended at Jesus Christ. You would never be offended at him when he called you to give up lust and anger and anxiety. You'd say, you became incarnate, you substituted for me, and you rose again so that I could not be anxious, so that I could not be angry, so that I could not covet and be unpleased with what little I think I have. I now understand how much I have in incarnation, substitution, and resurrection. Praise God. You think like that? You're never going to be offended at Jesus Christ. And anything that He calls you to do from His Scriptures, get there with those three words. And then you can add some more on after. There's plenty of words out there that you could ponder. So, Jesus sees that they're offended. He says no prophet is welcomed in even his hometown, much less his own household. And then it says this in verse 5. And boy, this is a troubling verse. We're going to have to unpack this one a little bit. He says, the, the scriptures say, Mark says, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Wow, I'm going to tell you. When I hit words, and he could do no mighty work there because these people were offended at him, I've got a momentary crisis. Because this is God in the flesh, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. This is God in the flesh. What do you mean he can do no mighty work? Were, were these people being offended at him? Was this like kryptonite for Jesus? Zapped him of all of his powers? No. You know the answer is no, but why is it no? Do you know why it's no? Yeah, we're all going to agree, no way, no way. But why? We need to understand why he could do no mighty work in Nazareth. And here it is. He could do no mighty work. Only because he would not do any mighty work. He could not because he would not. Now, it does say that he did go and heal a few people. So there's proof that he didn't lose his powers. He could not do any mighty work because he would not do any mighty work. Jesus' mighty works, if you survey these New Testament Gospels, his mighty works always are precipitated by faith. By faith. Do you notice Jesus didn't go heal every single person that existed in the Middle East at that time? There's select few people. And it's always a case of their faith. Just listen to this. Mark 5.34. Last week. Daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace and be healed of your disease. The precipitous event, the trigger mechanism was this bleeding woman's faith. Faith. If you look at blind Bartimaeus in Mark 10, we'll get to him in a few months. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. He heals because there's faith. I like this one, Luke 17. There's a leper 
There's ten lepers, but there's one leper that, that's healed by Jesus. And he said, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So Jesus performs miracles when faith is present. He heals people when faith is present. No faith, no healing. He's looking for authentic heart allegiance and belief towards him. And there's a truth that we need to understand as we put all that together. When faith is absent, it seems that God freezes his exercise of power in our lives. When faith is absent, it seems that God freezes his exercise of his power in our lives. Think about it for a moment. Personally. When we personally, in the privacy of our own heart, are riddled with anxiety. God is not going to perform a mighty, miraculous work in our lives while we are exercising the unfaithfulness and the unbelief of anxiety. And I'm going to say this morning that that's because God, Christ, is good and he loves us. The same goes with anger. The same goes with lust. And you could list the line out. If we are living in lust, our anger, our anxiety, and God blesses us, what are we going to do? We're likely going to continue to be lustful and angry and anxiety ridden because it worked. But in his love for us, he withholds blessing us when we're living in sin so as to not reinforce the sinfulness, but to discipline us. And then when we come to him in faith and repent of anger and lust and anxiety, he blesses your faith has made you well. Go in peace. That's how God works. We don't live in sin asking God to bless our sin so that we will quit sinning. We repent and we quit sinning out of faith in Jesus Christ. And then God blesses us and rewards us for this obedience and this worship. Let's apply this to the church. We as a church must be faithful if we are going to be blessed by God. May God not bless us if we are unfaithful to Him. I don't want that. Because then we will be rewarded for sin and we will keep on sinning. We need discipline. We need to be called to faithfulness. So, how about this? I gave you three examples in personal life. Anxiety, anger, lust. How about three examples in church life? First one, attendance. Jesus attended the synagogue faithfully everywhere he went. He craved to be in the presence of God's people. He craved to be there when the scrolls are unopened. And many times the scrolls were handed to him. He loved these gatherings. He revered these gatherings because he loved the Father and he had faith in the Father. 
And so belief, true belief, creates in us a desire to gather every time we can. And we take Hebrews 10.25 serious. Do not neglect to gather together as is the habit of some, but come together and encourage one another and stir one another up to love and good works until you see the day drawing near. That's what Jesus was doing in that synagogue. That's what we must do. And so we need to be faithful attenders of this church that God has blessed us with. And we don't need to let anything else in this world creep in and encroach and capture our Sunday mornings and take us away from here for a few months, year, three years. Jesus did not say on Sabbath days, I'll go meet in the Cracker Barrel and have church there. Jesus Christ went to the synagogue Because the body of Christ one day, the the people of God, were gathered at the synagogue, not at Cracker Barrel. They gathered together at the meeting place. And they unrolled the scrolls together. They read them and worshipped from them. That must be us. Second example. We must be faithful in serving If we have true faith in Jesus Christ, then we're going to want to serve in His body, the church. We're going to want to join with Him in nurturing and nourishing and encouraging and sometimes disciplining and confronting people so that they might exercise bold faith in Him. And so we serve in this church because we have faith in Jesus Christ. Christ will not bless our church if we don't attend it. Is, is that, that's not rocket science, is it? Christ will not bless our church if we don't attend her regularly, joyfully. Christ will not bless our church if we don't serve in our church. And we got some people that are serving in five different places and they're worn out. It takes a church to live in a fallen world. And so where can you serve Christ in Christ's church? And out of that act of faith, blessing can be humbly expected. It can. Third example. Tithing. Tithing is a an extreme exercise of faith. Let's just be very, very honest here. It is an extreme exercise and demonstration to God, not to man, to God, of worship and reverence and thanksgiving and acknowledgement that He provides all things. And I'm here to tell you today that a church that does not tithe cannot expect God to bless And do mighty works. Can't. And notice I'm not talking about how much money the church amasses. I'm talking about hearts of people giving a 10% tithe back to God. Of all that he gave them. Just 10% back to him. God is not about dollars and commas and zeros. He's about the hearts that are giving. And God can take a small collection of people that faithfully tithe a mere 10% and do many mighty miraculous works. It's amazing. 
what God can get out of 10% of somebody. It's not the big amount, it's the hard amount. And I'm here to say this morning that we as a church cannot expect God to bless our desires to further the kingdom when we won't have faith in Him and give to Him. So whether we are attending, serving, or tithing, it must be done out of robust faith. And then God says, peace be to you. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has grown you. Your faith is magnificent in building the kingdom. Go get after it. And then we're living in blessing. And it's the sweetest thing you've ever experienced. It is. It is. So we dare not expect God to bless us if we forsake attending, serving, and tithing. Because if he did while we neglected that, it would be bad for us. It would be bad for us. Because then we would be reinforced and we would continue to not have faith. And in his goodness, he will withhold until faith. Now look at this, verse 6. Running down the finish line now. So Jesus' response was, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, in his household, amongst his own relatives. And now verse 6, very, very troubling sentence. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about amongst the, amongst the village teaching. Just pause for a moment. And he marveled at their unbelief. And he marveled. Jesus Christ, God, marveled at these people's unbelief. Scripture tells us that Jesus marvels at two things. In Luke 7, 9, there's this Roman centurion who goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, my, my child is way over yonder, 15 miles away. Jesus, if you could just say the word, she'd be well. Would, would you just speak the word and heal her from here? Roman centurion, not a Nazarene. Roman centurion. And it says in Luke 7, 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Same word. He marveled at the Roman centurion who said, long distance, you speak the word, and my child is well. Would you do it, Jesus? Marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He marveled at the faith of this Gentile Roman centurion who believed that Jesus could do long distance healing. And the other thing that Jesus marvels at is in our text in verse 6 today. He marveled at their unbelief. What an astonishing concept. God, your maker, my maker, who breathed life into our nostrils, who formed us even in our mother's womb, who numbered our days, who knows every hair on our head. He marvels at us. God marvels at you 
The question is, what is he marveling at? Is he marveling at your belief in him? Or is he marveling at your unbelief? Is he astonished that you, after tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, would not believe? You'd live in anxiety. You'd live in lust. You'd live in anger. You wouldn't attend or serve or tithe, even though you've been exposed to him. Is he marveling at you? In these sinful ways, these ways of unbelief that you will not let go of. Or, have you said, Lord, I have no clue how this is going to work out. But wherever you go, I will follow. You are the living God. Where else can I turn? When people say that like Peter did... Jesus Christ marvels at that belief. And He blesses it. And He exercises mighty power in conjunction with it. So Jesus marvels one of two ways. Unbelief or belief. And either way, this text ends with He went out among the villages teaching. And so Jesus continues on combating unbelief by teaching. He doesn't say forget it. He just continues teaching because it is through teaching and the Word of God that unbelief evaporates and is replaced with belief. And that, by the way, is what Jesus does right here through this pulpit and this mouthpiece that He's asked to stand here today and preach. He is in this village teaching with the goal of doing away with All unbelief. And he wants to marvel at us and our belief in him. So I want you to be very, very careful. After hearing a passage like this, I want you to be very careful about how you will view and how you will relate to Jesus Christ. His hometown blew it. His family Blew it for a moment. Now, praise the Lord. We know that James and Jude wrote books that are in our Bible. They came to faith. We don't know about the other brothers and sisters. Praise the Lord. The Holy Spirit came upon them and saved them. But may we not be like Nazareth. And may we not even have, from this point forward, any season in our life where we act like Jesus' brothers and sisters and mom. Let's not ever look at him as if he was a lunatic. Let's not ever accuse him of being lying. Let's only say that he is Lord. In Jesus, God was in the very presence of the Nazarenes. This is God with us in the flesh. But they only saw a carpenter. Son of Mary. What do you see when you look at Jesus? A sage Guru, a carpenter, a son of Mary, maybe you see that. Or do you see Lord, God with us, God in the flesh, incarnate, substitute, resurrected? That's what you must see. It's the point of this text this morning. God chose to identify with us and to save us 
in such an intimate way. He became us, died for us, and now lives for us. Embrace Him with belief. So what about you this morning? This is the question I leave you with. This is the question that goes with you when you leave this building here in just a few moments. Does God marvel at your faith or does God marvel at your unbelief? You need to know the answer to that question. And I urge you to believe. Dear Jesus, I confess on behalf of all that are here, because I am with them, we have had moments where we have not believed rightly in you. Father, I, I think it's right to lead this congregation this morning in a prayer of repentance. For in moments in our life, maybe even today, but for sure in this last week, we have exercised unbelief. We've demonstrated that we don't rightly believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. We do this, Father, when we hold on to sin and we don't repent. We do this when we don't like what your Bible says against what we hold near and dear. And so, Father, this morning I ask, personally and congregationally, if I may do so, would you forgive us for unbelief? I thank you, Father, that in the moments that you've been astonished and amazed at our unbelief, you've continued to teach us with the goal of calling us to faithfulness. You've taught us well this morning, Father, from these six verses. You've taught us so well. Would you continue to wash us with this teaching and purify us so that we can be acceptable to you. And then, Father, I do ask, would you act in our midst and would you bless us and do mighty works in this church? And I pray this for the glory and for the reputation of Jesus Christ. Amen.